Impact Podcast. I'm John Wainwright. Today's show is going to be a little different. Instead of our normal two segments, we just have one roundtable discussion that focuses on the shooting of Stefan Clark and more so than the shooting itself, the issues that have come to the surface since March 18th. Um, and we'll also touch on some of the legislation that's been introduced in response to the shooting and the protests. We've got a great panel of lawyers and researchers for you today, and I think it's a particularly fascinating conversation. I don't want to give away too much, so I'm just going to leave it at that, and we'll catch up with you again at the end of today's episode. We have gathered quite the panel of people here to talk about a lot of the issues that have surrounded the shooting of Stefan Clark. We've got uh, Dr. Obed Magni, who's with the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Um, Alana Matthews, who's a former deputy district attorney. Correct. Glad to be here. We've got criminal defense attorney Keith Staten. Hello. And criminal defense and civil rights attorney Justin Ward. Hello. So let's start with this. Have any of you seen the most recent videos that were released by Sacramento PD from the night of the shooting? And what have been your takeaways from those videos? Well... This is Keith. Um, my the recent videos seem to be more of the outside happenings leading up to or the cops responding to it. My take of the videos, and this probably goes out to um, the second question that probably coming later, is that I'm glad the police have shared these videos. I'm glad that they've felt that this is uh, such an issue that they need to have an open policy with the public on seeing exactly what they've done. Um, their impact has has been dramatic, I will say, because individuals can now see uh, what's happening on the ground. And I think that was very important that that come out to the public. I have not. This has taken a toll, uh, not only on the community, but on me personally. And I just cannot process that tense moment. Um, we've heard a lot of talk about trauma and the black community and a lot of communities are kind of going through that trauma. So I've diverted my attention to more positive solutions and I can't take any more of looking at that problem. This is Obed Magni. I've obviously seen the videos, but uh, I will not comment any further. This is Justin Ward. I haven't seen the most recent videos. I saw, of course, the initial release of the videos but I do second Keith's statement about it's you know I think it's good that they were released for the public for, for transparency purposes okay and um as Keith mentioned that does lead into what I wanted to ask next and to give the police department credit that initial video they got out very quickly which I think is something that is unique to what Sacramento PD has done is that they've been very upfront about everything but um even so that videos come out and it really has touched a nerve within the black community in Sacramento, the black community nationwide, Sacramento as a community. Do we think things would have been worse had they dragged their feet on getting the video out? Absolutely. We have a, you know, we're reaching a boiling point where there's a lot of community distrust and it's a lack of transparency. So that would have just been exasperated had they not. So I think the Sacramento <coughs> Police Department is to be commended for their quick release, and even the city council, because I believe they uh, passed an, uh, a, a regulation or policy that gives a time limit to ensure that the public would have officer uh, in-car cameras or body camera, they'd have that footage as, as soon as possible. 
Yeah, and that that policy is actually 30 days. Um, but we've made it a practice, or at least the Sacramento Police Department has made it a practice to release it sooner than that. And in fact, I know that with uh, this recent event, you know, the message was, we, you know, the police department's going to release it in 10 days, and they released it in three. So uh, as far as, you know, increasing that transparency, I know that the Sacramento Police Department is way ahead of the game when it comes to, uh, you know, to making that happen. And I think we've seen in most incidents around the country when they've drugged their feet in terms of reduce, uh, releasing the video, when it finally does come out, individuals are shocked and appalled and, and they're upset at that particular point because things could have been brought out to the public earlier. So I do love that the police released it as fast as they did. All right. I'm going to direct this question to you, Obed. Um, kind of in your hat, as a researcher that's looked into issues of you know, increasing trust belief between law enforcement officers and the communities that they're serving. Looking at SACPD or even more broadly than that, are there um, like training procedures, policies that Sacramento PD has um, that really get them ahead of where other police departments are in terms of trying to bridge that gap between the law enforcement officers and the communities that they're protecting? Oh, absolutely. Obviously, it starts at the top. Uh, Daniel Hahn's a great chief. This is a man who's from the city of Sacramento, grew up in Oak Park. He's a visionary and he's far more progressive than others when it comes to, you know, increasing that transparency and, you know, increasing that trust. More so than that, the Sacramento Police Department has always been ahead of the game, especially when it comes to like, you know, training and so on and so forth. So, for example, um, POST, which stands for Peace Officers Standard and Training, is the accrediting agency that uh, gives their blessings to all the police departments, or most of them here in California. Um, They have set training benchmarks. So whether it's shooting, you know, pursuit driving, code three driving, all of those things, we go above and beyond when it comes to those trainings. So, you know, a neighboring agency may have one set of hours, but ours you know, will exceed that by 50, you know, or a hundred hours or whatever that is. Uh, I know that, you know, the men and women of the Sacramento Police Department hold themselves to a, you know, a higher standard, higher than, you know, others, higher than most. So that's something that, you know, I know that for a fact, you know, me working there and everything, you know, we, we do that for a reason so that, you know, not, we're not just being held accountable, but, you know, we try to stay ahead of the curve of, uh, you know, any issues that may arise in the future. Are there any kind of best practices you see other police departments doing that could be implemented at Sacramento PD or is kind of that nature of them just being ahead of the game on so many things? You know, that's what I was going to say. I would like to say that because we're, you know, we'll just use the example that we talked about earlier. A lot of police departments around the country, they don't even release videos until a case is adjudicated. So you're talking a year, two years uh, before, you know, you see any footage of what took place. So with us, or at least with the Sacramento Police Department, you know, the city council basically gives us 30 days to release videos. We're releasing it sooner than that. More so, we're, you know, the, the Sacramento Police Department is proactively putting videos out of the good things that we do. And even if, you know, there are some other controversial videos or anything of that sort, you know, there's nothing that this agency is trying to hide. And yes, some things may not look good, others not so much. The point is, is if we have nothing to hide, then it works out for everybody. There's, uh, you know, other agencies in the country that, you know, probably don't put that on the forefront and they've had issues, 
with the community, uh, so on and so forth, when it comes to uh, legitimacy. So I would like to say, at least uh, at least at the Sacramento Police Department, this is something that you know we're far ahead of the curve on that others should aspire to uh, try to be like. Okay. I'm actually going to open this next question up to whoever wants to take a stab at it. There are a couple of fairly revolutionary bills facing the state legislature right now. One of them is AB 931 that changes use of force rules. The other is SB 1421, which would open up certain aspects of police records to more public review. Should either of those pass, what do you think the impact of those would be on that relationship between law enforcement community and the communities that they're protecting? This is Justin. With regard to AB 931, which requires police officers to use deadly force when necessary, as opposed to the law I believe currently is reasonable, which it definitely should be, in my opinion, necessary to take a life, not just reasonable to take a life. But I think that will, uh, I think the hope and the belief is it will cause officers to pause before deciding to kill somebody, to use the amount of force that could result in someone's death. Let me make sure this is a gun and not a cell phone. Let me make sure that the the suspect is within striking distance with this knife or with this bat before I shoot my gun rather than use my taser or use my baton. So I think it will, I think the idea is one, it, 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 it shows that life is necessary. Life is very important rather than just it's reasonable. And two, I think it may or it should give the public a little bit more sense of, okay, I, I have, I'm safer now. I'm not going to just be killed because the officer thought it was reasonable to kill me. I look at the legislation and when it says pending, what it means to me is that um, we as a community and all communities around the state have got a rally in order to pass these things. If, they, if they're not passed, then they're, they're just paperweights. The necessary force... I want to say this, look, we're always focusing on really the apprehension of individuals, period. Officers come out and if they are facing an, an actual attack with weapons, guns specifically, then we understand the use of force. And that's where it's reasonable to use your gun. But when we look at all of these situations and you can name them all, they're apprehending someone. And if you're apprehending someone without a weapon or a knife and you're 20 feet away and there's 30 officers like the McDonald's situation, there should never be force that is used which causes death. There are other non-lethal force that should be there. So I would hope this legislation talks about the use of non-lethal force to apprehend. And it goes further, even in the Clark situation, nobody said he had a gun. Therefore, it's an apprehension issue because you don't even know if he's guilty of a crime, but you feel he's a suspect. Therefore, there are all kinds of things that could have been done before using lethal force. And as to the other, 1421, opening up police records, I think that's gonna be fought tremendously by police organizations because they don't want individuals to know complaints about them. I have ideas that the public could probably keep that kind of information uh, and it would probably do more than the legislation. 
So I like the legislation, but it doesn't go far enough for me. And I think our focus when we talk about force has to be on this apprehension. Because in every situation, whether it was Gardner, Sterling, uh, the brother who ran away in Lincoln, South Carolina, I mean, it's all about apprehending someone. And the real raw dog fact is this. Look, if I'm running and I, you stop me at a traffic stop and I got dope and I'm running, what danger am I to the community? You, we send out warrants if I letter for individuals to come turn themselves in for the same type of crime. So why would you apprehend with force at all? I think it's, it's a start because at the end of the day, there are people who are apprehended. There are people who commit crimes and... There is a necessary, a necessity maybe to use force, but force is not used. Their life is not taken. So a lot of times when we look at what the differentiating factor is, it's race. And so we have to deal with that systemic problem of why so many unarmed black men end up killed in a police contact. And you know, historically, we look at the videos and we say, well, he should have complied. But then we now have other videos that show that they have complied. Um, they've told the officer, I have a gun. I'm reaching for my gun. And still we have this tragic outcome. So, again, the legislation is a start. But if we want to look at how we're going to really impact and improve the relationship between law enforcement and the community, we have to get to those systemic issues. I want to transition from this a little bit. And one of the other main issues that's come up is from in the protest after the shooting, there has been a very clear call for justice. And in that meaning that the officers, there's a call for the officers who shot Stephon Clark to be prosecuted. And obviously there are, there was also a Sacramento B article not that long ago about campaign contributions from law enforcement groups to the current district attorney's reelection campaign. Without getting into campaign finance too much right now, Keith, I know, is a criminal defense attorney and also someone who's also served in the public defender's office, Alana, as a former deputy DA. Can you provide some insights into what the relationship is like between the law enforcement agents and the district attorney's office? Well, of course, it's complicated, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, prosecutors work very closely with law enforcement because that's the officers. You know, they have the arrest reports that they bring. Um, so, you know, the, the DA's office cannot usually secure a criminal conviction or an indictment without the collegiate work and collaboration with the police departments. However, I will say that there is a great deal of independence that's often exercised every day by prosecutors. And we see that because prosecutors have a duty to disclose misconduct. I've known instances where colleagues got to court and evidence was not there. And they're like, well, where is the evidence? So maybe there is some chain of custody. So, um, or there, there just may have been, I personally had a case where seasoned detectives didn't read the Miranda rights to the suspect and, you know, that could not come into evidence. So I, you know, I think when that happens, a lot of prosecutors will, you know, rise to the occasion using their ethical duty to disclose it and not try to cover it up. Um, at the same time, why I say it's complicated is because there are, you know, um, considerations that are personal. If you are working with police officers all the time, and I think you, you can acknowledge that. You build a rapport and a relationship, and if something has been done inappropriate, 
you know, you, you kind of have, they're taken aback. And, and that's just human nature. How many times have we seen crimes committed by a neighbor and the people around them saying, I've seen them all the time. I didn't know they were their way. So I think you have to acknowledge that. And you also have to acknowledge, you know, political considerations. Um, it is a political job. And the, the DA is an elected official. Um, and so there may be police unions or police organizations that are giving financial contributions to a campaign. So if, in order to have a real conversation about this, we have to acknowledge just the practical professional interdependence that they have, um, as well as acknowledge the independence that they exercise routinely, but then also look at the kind of personal and political considerations that can affect that relationship. And I'll say I'm a little bit more harsher, I guess, on this situation. I see is, look, they're in bed together. The police have to do something, bring it to the prosecutors in order to finish the job, so to speak. The prosecutors will never prosecute without the police help. And the police have to do their job for the prosecutors to help them. So they're definitely tied in together. So one can't operate without the other. As Alana said, you know, they make mistakes. People make mistakes. So we can accept mistakes, but it's harder sometimes to accept the mistake when it's from the person who brings you your bread and your butter. And sometimes you may want to overlook that because of the conflict between you and that agency. When we're talking about the DA, yes, it's a political position and people are going to give money where they need to give money. And they're doing that in order to ensure that we're all on the same page. And so that because the DA's office and the police must be on the same page, as soon as that goes awry or one feels they can't trust the other, then that whole system is going to fall. So they have to be together. And that relationship, to me, is extremely close and it must be there. Now, whether that's good for the public is a, could be a problem. It could be something like... Um, I was going to say, does that does that start to almost create like a conflict of interest, especially if there's something where the public is the public sentiment is clearly one way, and maybe the law enforcement sentiment is not the same. That's where I was going. Was there's sort of a conflict there because the next step is how does the DAs police the police because of that nature and in that relationship of being together. So that's where it really gets complicated because. You got to look at someone who brings you, you know, your food. You got to look at somebody who, who ensures you have a job, and you're going to say that they're doing things wrong. You know, you're going to prosecute them for making what they say are reasonable decisions, and that's going to be tough because in the law, all the lawyers will tell you the word reasonable is thrown around and kicked around tremendously, just about everywhere, and so. Is it reasonable to believe that the DAs and the police department are independent? No, it's not. They're together. So I see that relationship as being strong. It's going to remain strong. There's no way anyone's going to step in between, which leads to whether AGs or any other person should come in. But it, it, it harms what I feel is the credibility of the DAs in terms of going forward when they can't look at the police and say, ooh, we think you did this wrong, and now we want to take steps against it. And this is Justin, but to add to that, and because I've sued various law enforcement offices here in town over the years, the problem is is that it's not a matter of being complicated. It's we, we understand the relationship. As Keith said, they are in bed together or they are together. They are joined. One can't exist without the other. 
the evidence is of the fact that we've had multiple settlements. Stuart Katz in here in Sacramento has had multiple six-figure settlements and verdicts in federal court and sometimes here in local court uh, for police misconduct. By police, I mean all law enforcement, CHP, sheriffs, and local police. Multiple verdicts. None of those officers in the last 30 years that I'm aware of have ever been criminally prosecuted. And I understand that the standard is different, right? The civil standard is more likely than not preponderance of the evidence Mm -hmm. versus the criminal standard, which is beyond reasonable doubt. That being said, the, the fact that no charges were ever even filed, not one time by the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office, despite dozens of between Stuart Katz and and, uh, Mark Marin, between those two people alone, the amount of prosecution they've had, there have been at least 20 six-figure verdicts, at least 20 in the last 10 years. And not one of them was criminally prosecuted. There was a man who was in the back of a patrol car, handcuffed. This was about eight years ago. I don't remember his name. Back of the patrol car, handcuffed, and got shot in the head and killed. The officers somehow said uh, that the, they believed they didn't frisk him well enough, so he had a gun on him, and he was able to get to the gun while he was handcuffed. No criminal prosecutions. There was a, a, a civil settlement in that one. I don't know the number. But that's absurd. And that happens because the DA is supposed to police the police, and they are not. That's like telling me uh, I have to... Uh, As a prosecutor, I have to prosecute my brother or my sister. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to look the other way. I don't want my brother prosecuted. I don't want my mother prosecuted. And that's what we're asking them to do by having the DA. What is it? I think there's at least 10, at least five, between five and 10 female district attorneys who are married to law enforcement. That, That number may be low. There's at least five to 10. And so, and some of them are in higher positions in the DA's office. They're li- they're really married. They're actually married to each other <laughs> and in those situations. Together, we can. Yes. <laughs> Can't be more. Well, I think, I think one thing that also needs to be brought out when I say like it's complicated because you're asking the police to police the police. But really, when you look at procedurally, when an officer-involved shooting happens, the Sacramento County DA's office, their policy is to let the jurisdictional agency, so wherever the shooting happened, um, they are the lead investigator. So if it happened in the city of Sacramento, then the Sacramento Police Department is the jurisdictional agency. So the Sacramento DA's office is relying, one, on that jurisdictional agency to contact them to say yes. Now, the DA's office in their procedure, and this is on their website too, they can send an investigator to the scene or they can just get a briefing. But most of the investigation that they're getting is from the jurisdictional agency. So you could even say, you know, the DA is asking the police, is asked to police the police by using the police's own documents and, you know, study and investigation. And and I think they have a policy that it, it states unless they are asked, they can do their own independent, like at the outset, do their own independent investigation. And I don't, they don't have any statistics on how often they do that, but that's how it's further complicated. So this is Obed and uh, I think I'm getting bloodied up over here you know, with, this, uh, <laughs> with this panel. No, so there, 
I totally understand the optics of what you guys are talking about. And obviously, you know, at the end of the day, the job of our criminal justice system is to bring justice to victims. Okay. So to the point that everyone is making here, and I think the, you know, the chief, the Sacramento police chief is keenly aware of this. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why the state attorney's general's office is involved in, uh, you know, in this case, uh, for those reasons that, that was just brought up right now. Um, and again, you know, I obviously can't comment on certain things or anything like that, but one of the reasons why, and one of the reasons why I feel privileged to be here with you guys is we can talk about those differences and talk about, you know, how it affects uh, different stakeholder groups. Um, I think it would be bad or, you know, not in the best interest of the community if, you know, law enforcement groups were to just work on their own and not at least be at the table to listen to those grievances. Now, I might have some disagreements about how we approach things here and there, but if we're not at the table and we're not even having the conversation, then it's a moot point anyways. So... Um, I totally understand uh, some of the optics of that, you know, with police and DA's office being in bed together and all of that. And, you know, I think, again, going back to, you know, the point where, you know, Sacramento is ahead of the game is when you do have a high profile situation like this, you know, to keep that transparency, to keep that legitimacy, to keep that trust with the community, uh, you know, having the state attorney's general's office, you know, involved with this investigation um, is going to help with that. Now, you know, we can always discuss, you know, what happens after the fact, you know, um, and everything. But I think, uh, you know, there is some hope uh, with, you know, with the new legislations coming out. I'm not saying I'm for them. I'm not saying I'm against them. But the fact that, you know what, what's wrong with revisiting some of these laws? Does anything need to be tweaked? I mean, I can say as a researcher, how do we define reasonableness and then how do we define necessary? Is there any difference between the two? As a researcher, that's that's what I'm thinking. We have to even we have to define that first before we even go forward, uh, because your definition of necessary is going to be different from my definition of necessary. So if we can't even come to a consensus with that, you know, we're behind the eight ball. So one thing I just want to piggyback on what Obed said was about Sa- Sacramento Police Department being ahead of the curve. Let let's be let's be transparent here, Daniel Hahn is ahead of the curve. Police Chief Daniel Hahn, who's been in the position for about six months, is ahead of the curve. Prior to Chief Hahn being in the position, there were no police videos released within even 30 days. Despite all the shootings I mentioned earlier about the, the verdicts and the settlements, there those weren't released on video. I didn't. We didn't see the the, the man get shot in the back of the patrol car. That none of that was done. So I mean, we gotta let's not have revisionist history here. The 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 reality is, and I appreciate that Chief Han is is progressive in his thinking and in his actions. I don't know that it's Sacramento Police Department policy. It's Chief Han's policy. What we and I would like to see it become you know, codified so that it is mandatory that these things take place. That way, when uh, Chief Han retires, whenever that is, and hopefully it's a long time from now, it can't just go back to how it was before. Exactly. And that's why I think in all these situations, the attorney general or some other independent group should come in to handle these prosecutions. They tried to, a police commission, an oversight group, 
they have to give teeth to that group. They have to allow that group to even do any kind of investigation. Uh, the SAC PD has the Office of Police Accountability. However, it's only staffed by one woman. And the sheriffs have none. There's, the CHP have none. So they're not even looking at themselves in a way to see whether something is wrong. So it must be some independent group to step in because of that natural conflict of interest that's going to be there. And just like we've been saying, how do the police tell the police that they did something wrong? I mean, they have internal affairs, but I mean, I, don't, I wasn't aware and I don't know the police procedure and Obey can answer this. When there is an officer involved shooting, is internal affairs immediately called to the scene? Yes. All right. Um, so in the interest of time, I'm just going to jump to the last question I have for the group here. There's very obviously been a lot of national attention, not just on what's happened in Sacramento, but on this issue more broadly nationwide. Is that attention moving the needle at all? Or are we just now more aware of the problem, but in terms of actually getting towards solutions, we're just kind of running around in circles? Oh, I, sorry. That's actually an easy question to answer. Uh, you just talked about it from the very beginning. You've got two bills being introduced into California state law that we know other you know states in the country are going to start doing the same thing. Um, again, I'm not saying I'm just right, wrong, or indifferent. That's moving the needle. That is the people saying, you know what? We're not seeing the change that we're looking for, so we're going to take it upon ourselves to circumvent whatever that system is, and we're going to change the laws to you know change whatever it is that we're not happy with. Um, that's not something that I don't think anybody at this table has seen before. Um, usually, and again, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with protests or anything like that, but going to lawmakers and introducing laws, that's that's something that's never been done before. So I think you're probably starting to see, you're going to start to see this being the new normal in the criminal justice system. This is the changing of the laws that do affect the policies. I think we've been seeing police on black violence uh, for years. Uh, Rodney King in the 80s. We've been seeing it in videos that have been released a year later, things like that. Um, so being aware of it, oh, we've always been aware of it. I think it was Newsweek or Time who came out with an article and then the public said, oh, this is going on. But yet in the black community, we knew it was going on always. So I'm hoping it's moving a needle. But what I tend to see is we protest after these events, we get very mad, we run into city council, and then it burns its way out as they make a civil settlement, and it's done. And then it happens again, and we'll protest, and we'll get mad, we'll run the city council, and then they'll make a settlement, and then we move on. So I'm tired of seeing that kind of cycle, which my focus is focus on the black community and how the black community can change in order to put economics at risk here is why we need officers, how we should behave in the community and be more invested in our own communities and so that officers don't have to oversee us. Yeah, there's recently a documentary that I watched, uh, Hope and Fury, and it just talked about how the civil rights movement used the power of print and visual media to kind of awaken America's consciousness. And I think that this civil rights issue right now, because this is a civil rights issue of our time, is using social media to kind of awaken, you know, the conscience of America to say things are done. But we have to have a more comprehensive and systemic approach. So, yes, we can protest and go to council members, 
but we actually need reform and policies and procedures. We need to not do the cosmetic things like having a police oversight commission that doesn't really have any teeth. And we need laws on the books because at the end of the day, it's the laws that shape um, the framework for which we live our lives. And that's why you have landmark cases from Plessy v. Ferguson to Brown versus Board of Education. And, you know, we started with the laws and worked our way up through the court system all the way up to the Supreme Court. So we're moving the needle. We got a long way to go. And hopefully we can get there. And I, I would just add that um, in terms of solutions, speaking more specifically on Sacramento, this issue, this incident has highlighted the issues that Sacramento has had that have not been on the national scale. Uh, Jan Scully and now Anne-Marie Schubert have been allowed to just go under the radar. Nobody's talked about the lack of prosecutions of officers for uh, excessive force in any way. And now there is a spotlight. I believe Anne-Marie uh, Schubert had a, she had a press conference yesterday or the other day talking about what you know procedures uh, that the district attorney goes through um, in terms of making the decision. But what no reporter asked or what wasn't answered was why, for some reason, there's never been an officer who has used excessive force enough uh, that warranted a prosecution. Never in the last 30 years. And that's all I know about is 30 years. That's not answered, but it's, it's uh, a question being asked now. And so I, I do appreciate the fact it's unfortunate that it took a tragedy to, to bring that to the forefront, but it is, it has brought attention to it and legislation has already started and I believe legislation will continue. You know, if I could uh, throw one more sheepish plug in here for the American <laughs> Society of Evidence-Based Policing, me being one of the founding uh, members. So when you think about the, in the medical field, for example, right, when you think about a medical procedure that's going to be done, or let's say with pharmaceutical companies, a new drug being introduced to the market, it goes through a testing process, right? So that obviously we're going to make sure whatever we introduce is going to be safe, nobody gets hurt increases that legitimacy and all that stuff. So I'll give you an example. Um, I'm not a woman, obviously, and I've never given birth to kids and I have no kids. If I wanted to know what is the, how long am I supposed to breastfeed my baby? Okay, I'm gonna go to the American Pediatric Association and find out what those recommendations are. Why is that? Everything that they do is based on research. And if they say that it's three months or 10 months, I don't know what it is. I literally don't know. I have a nine-month-old at home. They, they say it's a year. Okay, <laughs> let's say it's a year. You trust that. You trust that because it's based on evidence, on objective research, so on and so forth. We have nothing like that here in the United States of America in the criminal justice system. So if you've got a department, for example, that has a policy in place that does more harm than good in the community, who's going to hold that agency accountable? If you look at the, you know, back in the 80s and the, with the crack cocaine epidemic, we had the zero tolerance policies, the criminalization of drug use, so on and so forth. Who did that affect? It affected people that look like me and everybody else at this table, the black and brown folks, right? Mass incarceration, you've got distrust, delegitimization in the criminal justice system with the police departments, so on and so forth. And I can go on for days, everybody already knows the history of how much that has truly hurt the black and brown um, community here in the United States. 
we at the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing recognize that policies, the things that we do in the criminal justice system and police profession, in the policing profession, we don't know what truly works or what doesn't work. Everything is anecdotal. Hey, I heard that agency so-and-so down the street is doing this, so we should do the same thing. Well, what is that based on? We're not taking into account the demographics, socioeconomic status of the people there, you know, so on and so forth. So what I'm saying is, in addition to what uh, you know, I talked about earlier with laws being introduced, you do have organizations such as the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. There's a conference next month in Philadelphia. Please sign up. Go on the website, AmericanSEBP.org, where we're changing or we're looking to change the language that we speak when it comes to policing here in the United States. And that's the role that I play because I'm big on emotional intelligence and motivation, job satisfaction, all of those things. Um, but I'm also big on how do we increase that trust and diversity and not just on, oh, hey, you know what? Let's just do this coffee with the cop. That's going to work. I mean, that's good, but that's not where you're going to establish that relationship. That might be the shiny object. Hey, look at this ball over here approach. And I'm not I'm not really big on that. So um, to your point, ma'am, on the trauma Myself and three other colleagues are getting ready to do research on secondary trauma in police community relations. It's those type of projects that we're getting involved with, you know, so that we can have it not just documented, but come up with those policies, maybe changes in the laws and how we approach things, whether it's, you know, um, you know, trauma in the community, whatever those things are. We haven't gotten to that point yet. But that's the language that we're speaking, and that's the language that should be spoken um, in the criminal justice field. So. And as much as I would love for this conversation to go on for the many more hours it could, we're going to leave it at that. But Obed, Alana, Keith, Justin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's show. And thank you again to our panelists, Dr. Obed Magni, Justin Ward, and our two McGeorge alumni on the panel, Alana Matthews and Keith Staten. Thank you also to the McGeorge Black Law Student Association and the Wiley Manual Bar Association who did all the hard work of bringing these panelists together and let me borrow them for an hour to talk with them about uh, everything we talked about today. We'll link off to the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference that Dr. Magni mentioned towards the end of today's conversation. Uh, we'll also link off to uh, ASEBP's website and uh, Dr. Magni's website, as well as the website of the rest of today's panelists if you want to learn more about what they're currently working on. As always, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please take the time to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, which will help other people find the show more easily. And of course, if you want to find more of our audio, video, and written content, please check out our website. It's capimpactca.com. You can always let us know what you think of the show on Facebook and Twitter. Just look up Cap Impact on Facebook or hit us up at, at CapImpactCA on Twitter. And last but not least, thank you to the Capital Center for Law and Policy at McGeorge School of Law for making this podcast possible. You can find the Capital Center online at go.mcgeorge.edu slash Capital Center. And that is capital with an A. Thanks for listening to today's show. Talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.